So this was pretty much, oh shit, the episode. Yeah, that was actually the working title. Yeah, okay. You know, it makes sense. Um, yeah. Everything that had, you know, these were, there were a lot of, I can't, for. Well, let me ask you this. Yeah. So at the end of In Purgatory Shadow, it ends with the Dominion fleet coming through the wormhole. Obviously, you probably thought, oh, yeah, they're going to attack the station. Yeah. They don't attack the station. No, but what happens is so much worse. Well, yeah, I, that's, I guess, the question that I want to open this conversation <laughs> with, you know, in, in Inferno, by Inferno's Light is, does this make sense? Oh does this feel God, like a yes. stalling tactic? No, this makes sense because, the, I mean, the Dominion's plan is not – at the end, at the beginning of the episode or the end of the previous episode, we think, oh, my God, if the Dominion were to come and all their ships were to start firing, it would be terrible. And, the, you know, this episode would be a huge space battle. And – the fact that their plan is so much more – is going to dis, not just you know destroy a bunch of ships, but they would – they have a plan that's going to actually wipe out Bajor and everything is so – you know that that's much more Dominion, isn't it? Yes. I mean <laughs> in, in a certain sense, the Dominion finally coming out you know, into the open in force, sending you know, just a massive yeah. amount of ships through the wormhole – and is 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 in a way a status quo change this is a big status quo change because now of course cardassia is once again yeah not an enemy necessarily but not a friend oh, and i think that if yeah. the federation you know the federation doesn't want to fight the dominion the federation wants to be friends with everyone or at least be at peace with everyone uh but of course the dominion does not want that and i think at this point in the show's run we can kind of see where this is going but or maybe not. I don't know. I don't want to put words. Well, in it's it's kind but, of re. Well, let me finish my point. I think that that having Cardassia join the Dominion is not really a change for the Dominion because the Dominion probably was always going to reach this point at 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 some point. Yeah, but it is coming from Cardassia. It seems like well, because this was Gal Dukat's idea. You know, he so this this is. This is, I, I assume, one of the major things that you were leading me towards with Gold Dukat, that, you know, he was going to do something like this. And I don't know what if he has any more ultimate plans beyond this. I don't know what, you know, if he's really secretly doing this to, or, you know, what what he thinks about his own position yet. I, I, I don't think we've seen him be honest enough about that. But, uh, you know, he he has sold out the Cardassians. Um it's interesting because Cardassia is in some ways where Bajor was at the beginning of the series and that Cardassia is now occupied, more or less. Golducat is a quizzling. He is the leader of a puppet government, basically, now. It's interesting because several times in conversations he's had with Kira and other Cardassians have had, you think that, you know, the Cardassians seem to think that Bajor should have seen that Cardassia was so much of a superior force yeah. and shouldn't have even fought back. Like, they don't get why the Bajorans resisted. And in a way, Gul Dukat going and saying, all right, we'll be Dominion people now, is is completely in line with that idea because he sees Gul, Gul Dukat, you can tell, is making partially making this decision, yes, so he can be the leader of Cardassia. That's what he wanted, but... He figures either the Dominion's going to totally destroy us like they did the Obsidian Order. He has seen the Obsidian Order get crippled. Um, You know, it's better to be the, you know, to have an to have occupied Cardassia than it is to have no Cardassia. 
Yeah. Well, I wonder... The show doesn't really telegraph this decision on Gal Dukat's yeah. part. And on the one hand, it seems to come out of nowhere. On the other hand, if you look at what's been going mm-hmm. on behind the scenes and the ways in which the show has been sort of threading this idea that Cardassia is lost, Cardassia is at a crossroads, Cardassia has also been weakened by the, mm-hmm. the, the cold or hot war with the Klingons, and... It is a decision born out of Golduk's sociopathy. It is a decision born out of his decision to also make Cardassia a power to be reckoned with again. Yeah, you know, Cardassia has been weakened. Cardassia on the world, well, on the world stage, on the galactic stage, has had its reputation tarnished precipitously. And look at the way in which Golduk's frames this decision. You know, he's not saying the we're not becoming saying. He doesn't say we're becoming part of the Dominion, I don't think. I think he says we're becoming partners, which well, you know, is, and, and that is not really the way the Dominion operates. And I think and, that Gal Dukat is pro- probably going to realize that. Yes. Uh, one of the things I think – I think the Dominion are willing to play long games if they need to. And so – you know, certainly maybe they're even – whatever agreement the Dominion and Cardassia have at this point, the Dominion is not going to stick to that, obviously. They're, well, they're, they're I, going I, to be I, – I, I, would, I would tweak that slightly. I think that Gul Dukat doesn't know what it means to be a member of the that's Dominion. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I know we, were, we had been talking about, you know uh, – uh, we talked about the Ferengi have, you know, we're kind of the first to work with the Dominion. And, you know, I think I've said if the Dominion were to take over the Alpha Quadrant, you know, they, they would have the Ferengi being, you know, doing all of the trade thing, handling the business stuff, for example. And because obviously if, if the Dominion can conquer people without firing a shot, you know, so much the better for them. And so, you know, they've ser- they've already conquered Cardassia now. And so I I, I think... Golducott might see himself or Cardassia as, all right, well, we're going to, you know, we're going to administer everything in the Alpha Quadrant when really they're, you know, think that they'll be equal with the founders. I, I mean, I wonder, yeah. I, I, I feel like Golducott might have that much of a blind spot. I think he does. I mean, I don't, I don't think that Golducott has, has thought through the ramifications no. of this decision in any real way. And I think that Gal Dukat made made this decision because he wants to be the leader of Cardassia. And he's figuring, all right, the Dominion aren't actually going to affect me. Right. But he's the leader of Cardassia, of a Cardassia that is now part of the Dominion. Yeah. His ability to act independently of the Dominion is going to be severely curtailed, and I don't think he realizes (laughs) that. His job as president of Cardassia is going to involve... Getting, get, getting, getting policies from the Dominion and reading them to his people, and that's it. Yeah, I mean, you it's know? basically like being the governor of Guam. Yeah, I mean, no offense to Guam, but you know, <laughs> it's it's not like the, the Cardassia is all that important to, to the Dominion. No, it's uh, uh, again, it's if if it's easier if they can conquer him without any effort, you know, they they've done nothing, no effort in order to conquer Cardassia. Yeah, exactly. They just had a few meetings. Um, it's interesting because this episode, uh, I guess, w- you're, I'm beginning to have ideas of what the Dominion's plans for the different you know species that we know of might have been, and I feel like they kind of wanted to. I don't know. I, I, I this episode has a, what what I really got the most from this episode were the connections between 
Worf and that Jem'Hadar, that the whole connections between the Jem'Hadar and the Klingons. Yeah. Um, we don't know yet what the Jem'Hadar's backstory was, whether they are created or whether they were a people who were then altered by the Dominion or something. But you can't you see that that was their plans for the Klingons. You know, if if they could further breed Klingons so that they had a weakness such as uh, um, Ketracel White in them, uh, that that would be perfect for the Dominion. They're almost take. I guess what I think about Cardassia is Cardassia is the Dominion's second choice. The Klingons were their first. Well, maybe, but I, I also think that, that the Dominion realizes that there's no way that they could have gotten the Klingons yeah, and without a war. Exactly, and I think that's... But the, the Dominion is nothing if not practical. Once once uh, Martok was revealed, you know, now they're moving on to, all right, well, Gold Ducat's our backup plan. Now we'll deal with that. Well, and this is really what... I mean, let, let's let's you know zoom out for a minute and take the big picture view of what's happened... Uh, uh, in the Alpha Quadrant since the the discovery of the Dominion back in the second season finale, the Jem'Hadar, they have infiltrated the highest levels of the Klingon government, the uh, uh, the Federation, assumedly other ones as well. They have now been able to get Cardassia to join them. And this has all happened without them firing a single shot. Uh, this is not great. And mm-hmm. if you look at the ways in which the Dominion is operating, they seem to be using force as a last resort. They're, and they're, they're very much more about subterfuge, about political alliance, if they can get it, about convincing you that joining the, the Dominion is going to be in your best interest because otherwise they're going to send in the Jem'Hadar. Well, that's it. And, the case with the Klingons and the Federation, for example, they were just... You know, uh, it, one of the major points of that was that Gauron and the rest of the Klingons were not taken over by the Dominion or anything. They were just yeah. You had one who was nudging and then then letting old resentments and and things kind of go of their own inertia. So well, that that you, seemed to be what the Dominion was trying to do yeah. was using the the political situation in the Alpha Quadrant against itself for a mm-hmm. while, letting the other species and the other sort of uh, you know polities do their work for them, and then of course you know because because to a certain degree. Yes, Gul Dukat can have all kinds of discussions with the, the Dominion that he wants to about joining. But if the Dominion isn't going to get anything out yeah. of it, they're not going to do it. And this is a radical shift in the way in which the Dominion is operating in the Alpha Quadrant. Because let's be clear, this is them coming out into the open and yeah. now saying, you know, we are going to now be taking an active role in the Alpha Quadrant without hiding founders all over the place, without using your old enmities against you. This is a new phase in this yeah, problem. Yeah, Cardassia Prime is now a base of operations for the Dominion. And frankly, if their plot to destroy Bajor and DS9 and all of that in this episode worked, then the area around the wormhole would have been their base of operations. Sure, yeah. Because, you know, there would be no solar system anymore. Yeah. And that would have been fine. Yeah, for them. they would they build their care. own space station, and that would be it. Well, and I guess you know, I want to talk a little bit about the the Klingons as well because I don't know. We haven't really talked a lot about the internment camp stuff, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But what I really find uh, uh, interesting in this episode is the way in which they very deliberately uh, have started seeding the idea 
of the Klingons and the Romulans coming together with the Federation. Yeah. Because, you know, the Klingons obviously were, were allies with the Federation for many years. And, of course, they, they you know, tore up the Kittimer Accords a couple years ago. And in this episode, that's all taken care of again. Yeah. You know, Cisco immediately gets Gowron to re-sign them yeah. and everything is good again. The Klingons and the Federation are friends again. Great. But and there is a sense of rightness to that at this oh, point because you know it's yeah. just repairing a a breach and frankly you know well giving, the bre- the breach was manufactured by the, yeah by the founders and Gowron frankly had you know said at the end of this like there are some Klingons who you know he made it very clear like Gowron is willing to sign it at any point he just need you know. The timing, you know, situations need to be right. And at the end of this episode, when the Federation has saved General, the real General Martok, that's as amazing of a, yeah. you know, you, you can't ask for a better moment than that. But, you know, when when the Dominion and the Cardassians are sending out these fake, you know, signals that they're they're amassing yeah. a giant fleet, and of course, their real plan is to have the Changeling Bashir yeah. essentially the bomb, in the, bomb the Bajoran sun and, and destroy the solar system, that... You know, that is an opportunity for the show to show a lot of, you know, show a big fleet without actually having to use it. Yeah. And to also, you know, really get the point behind it that the Federation is not going to be able to stand against the Dominion by itself. Yeah. I mean, even They're that... going to need the Klingons and they may need the Romulans and they may need other races. But yeah, I think that's, in- I think it's interesting actually that, I mean, you say the Dominion uses, subterf- uses subterfuge. I mean... They're still using subterfuge, mm-hmm. you know. Their their plan happens, you know. Their plan really involves one ship. Sure. The entire reason they had their fleet was to see the idea that there is a fleet, so that way, when you see all these warp singles, you're going to think it's the fleet. Sure. And yeah, it, 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 it's it, it, that, real, it, it it's the kind of plan that would have, again would have worked if it weren't for those meddling kids. If <laughs> you know, if, if they didn't manage to. You know, if if Garrick didn't manage to fix the thing at the last possible fucking second, then you know the entire Bajoran system would have gone. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I think what's really nice about it is that the Dominion stuff and the Federation stuff in this episode works really well because you see the Dominion on the one side and you see the Federation on the other side, and what you get is. Uh, a, a real validation, I think, of you know some of the ideals of Star Trek that are threaded through the entire franchise, which is that you know the Dominion is focused on subterfuge, the Dominion is focused on conquest, and the Federation is focused on you know peaceful cooperation, yeah. acting in good faith with other species. And of course, at the end of this episode, we get a giant fleet of Starfleet, Klingon, and, and Romulan yeah. ships. Three species that, you know, historically have been enemies were enemies, you know, 80 years ago. The Romulans are still not real cool with, no. with the Federation, but that is where this is going. They're, even and, like, they're cooler with the Federation than the Dominion. I mean, yes. there is a degree to which, number one... There, well, the are en- there are enemies, but it's the Federation. There are local enemies in a way. Well, like- and, the, and the Romulans know that the Federation is never going to invade them. Yeah. Like, unless they absolutely have to. And that would be in response to Romulan provoking. <laughs> exactly. So I think that they. it's kind of nice in a way that the show is able to use all this stuff that's been developed slowly over the years yeah. in a way that does really validate, I think, you know, some of the messages of Star Trek. Yeah. Like I said, it's been really nice seeing the, you know, seeing the development of Gowron from a full series ago. You know, yeah. I like how much they've. Yeah. Think to how he was introduced and think to where he is now. Yeah. This is the um, 
the, these are plot lines that maybe that started way back in Heart of Gold and Sins of the Fathers, for example, and. Uh, you know, obviously it wasn't, you know, necessarily intended, you know, but they've sure. taken all of this into – the show is – when the show is at its best, it's because it's able to see these threads and follow the next logical implication of them. Yeah. And, it, and it feels a very rich dynamic universe. As yeah. you said, you know, D- Deep Space Nine is the best of the world building of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, well, let's talk about the internment camp stuff then because I like it. I think that, you know – it it works well as a counterpoint yeah. to the big galactic political stuff that's going on because this is a very personal story. You know, this is Garrick's very personal story, and this is also Worf's very personal story. And we also get to learn a little bit about the Vorda, and we get to learn a little bit about the Jem'Hadar. Yeah. Um, I like see, I like Martok, the real Martok, a lot because he is a Klingon with integrity in a lot of ways. I love Martok. Okay, yeah, like he... We, we we had seen it, you know. I I we had this impression of Martok as kind of an asshole because, frankly, he wasn't really Martok, and you know, seeing him and the way he is with you know working with Worf, and so I I assume now he's going to be a secondary character on the show, or you know, we'll see him from time to time mm-hmm. at the very least, which makes me very happy. I will say, yeah, he's great. I mean, he's one of my favorite late DS Nine okay. recurring characters. Yeah. Um. Uh, you know, in, in terms of, I guess, like I said, what I found the most, the Garrick stuff with the claustrophobia, that's interesting and all of that, but... I mean, they need an obstacle because otherwise it would have been too easy yeah. for them to get out. And it makes, you know, it makes complete sense. It also does go with, uh, if we remember the episode where he has that brain implant that, mm-hmm. you know, makes him deal with, D, you know, the, the pain of being in DS9. So, yeah, Garrick responding very badly to a bad environment is within the show and within him. Yeah, 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 yeah. And also, interestingly enough, Andrew Robinson also suffered from a mild okay. form of claustrophobia, so those scenes were difficult for him to film. <laughs> but part yeah. of why they were so well done. Yeah, well, you know, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I don't know that there's too much to say about the Garrick story other than that. You know, it doesn't really reveal much about him. I mean, obviously, he's going to be the guy that's able to to, to re-program uh, uh, yeah. the signal because that's who he is. You know, and the claustrophobia adds a, a little layer of, of dramatic uh, uh, tension to it that otherwise would not be there. I think actually the real meat of the internment camp stuff is is Worf. Oh, yes, yes. And, and it's a nice counterpoint to the Jem'Hadar and the Zavor Tadeos. Uh, now, have we seen him before? I don't think so, no. Um, but, you know, he's a standard Vorta. I was going to say, he being... reminded me of the one from... What what the, was that episode? Uh, where, where they're going to get the rogue uh, Jem'Hadar? Oh, uh, um, Wayun. Yes, yeah, yeah. He reminded me a lot of Wayun because he's very bored. He's very impatient with their ritual shit. You know, he 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 doesn't get it, and you know, he sees these as like little kids that he's babysitting, basically. Right. But um, you know, so yeah. But there, but that is really, I think that that the the wharf and the Jem'Hadar are able to come to yeah. some sort of understanding of each other. And I think that, again, in, a, in an episode that that is very focused on, I think, the ideals of Star Trek and some of the themes of yeah. Star Trek, that's another one. Where no. the Jem'Hadar and the Klingons have been able to... Worf in this one... I mean, I'll be clear about it. Worf well, and this one Jem'Hadar have been able to come to some sort of understanding and mutual respect. But he's also not the first Jem'Hadar that somebody's been able to understand or 
that has uh, uh, the one that Bashir was trying to help with that disease. Uh, with, yeah. Figure, figure out, you know, how to do the Ketrazel White or whatever. Um, you know, they were certainly looking for a life that was beyond that. You know, the, the at this point, we're told the Jemindar don't have a sense of pleasure. They don't have passion. You know, they don't have honor in the Klingon sense. But at the same time, they do have a lot in common with Klingons in that everything is fairly ritualized, that battle is their way of life. And frankly, I think the two could learn a lot from each other. And I think this episode is showing that if you put a Klingon and a Jem'Hadar in a room together, they'll eventually maybe even find some common ground. You get the sense of that, you know, if the Jem'Hadar were able to go out of the Dominion, you know, and you could frankly re-socialize them and – but have – you know, give – you know, I don't want to say they need Klingons to give them a framework and to help their society. But at the same time, I mean the Federation knows how – you know, would might consider the Jem'Hadar to be a bit of a – stagnant society in some ways and yeah, yeah now oh. that the klingons are back in the federation they would be the perfect ones to liaise with them and i hope that's kind of the direction that that eventually goes we'll see okay i i do think that the the two battle cries of the jemhadar and the klingons contrasted with each other are are very interesting actually yes. because the klingon of course classically is today is a good day to die but the Jem'Hadars is remember victory is life. Yeah. Now, for a species that only lives, you know, 20 years because they all die in horrible ways in battle, what does that mean? I mean, they're, the two of them are tabs of each other, you know, the, you know, an acceptance of death, but a glory through victory kind of a thing. And I, I, I don't know. The, it, seems, it, it seems like the Klingons... Accept death as a necessity, but the Jem'Hadar— or, or as a possibility. As a possibility, but something that does not make them less dignified. The Jem'Hadar do the same, but with life. Life doesn't make us any less dignified, and we have to accept that we live as a possibility. I kind of read it a little differently. Okay. I mean, I, I kind of get the impression—I mean, this is just my my interpretation of it— but that the Jem'Hadar say that because— that is what it is. You know, victory is life to them. And they want to continue living only because they can have more victories. Whereas the Klingon today is a good day to die implies that there are bad days to die and there are bad ways to go. The Jem'Hadar don't seem to think that. They think that as long as they are fighting at their best, Mm. they're going to continue to live until they die one day, but the death is meaningless. Whereas the Klingons are very much the opposite of that, where they say, you know, as long as I'm going out in a way that is honorable, then that's good. Well, I mean, to be fair, I don't think, uh, like, like the episode of Next Generation where Worf, you know, breaks his spine or whatever, and, you know, he thinks that's a dishonorable way of dying, yeah. you know. Uh, probably dying after a lingering illness is not an honorable way to die for a Klingon. But, you know, I I don't think a Jem'Hadar lives long enough to get a deadly disease. It, they'll die before that happens. Yeah, no, they don't, honestly. So maybe they're, yeah, really maybe battle is the only way that they die. But also, you know, the Jem'Hadar's sole purpose in life is to fight. Yes. The the sole purpose of a Klingon is not to fight. No, the fight— I mean, certainly the fighting is ritualized. The fighting is integral to their society and their culture. But at the same time, uh, uh, they are not uh, constantly in battle. And, and, he, and the, you know, the thing is there's a lot— 
victory may be life for the uh, for the Jem'Hadar, but what does that mean? They don't celebrate it. When a Klingons have a victory, what are they doing? They're getting drunk. They're eating. They're feasting. They are singing songs. You know. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 so well, and of course, I mean the other the other half of victory is life is that it implies that non-victory is death. Yeah. And so there's there's this implication that the Jem'Hadar never give up. They they just they keep going until they die. Yeah. Whereas the Klingons are not. But you they, know, they're not like that. But that is how Worf is in this episode. You know, I think it's interesting that Martok, the Klingon that we say has integrity, saying, you know, your honor satisfied. You know, you you your honor was satisfied three battles ago. You know, you're doing fine, and you know, Worf is willing to continue to the death, and that's what that Jem'Hadar says. I could, I can very easily kill him. I can't defeat him. Yeah, and that's and, what that's about. Yeah, yeah. and realizing that. You know, I think it is giving that Jem'Hadar a different nuanced opinion of victory and domination. And again, he earns a respect from Worf, even though in the physical condition that Worf is in at the end of the episode, he can't beat the Jem'Hadar. Yeah. He can't. And finally, never trust a Breen. (laughs) I didn't. Oh, so that's a Breen. I didn't know who the hell that... uh, I just like that there's like this wordless brain hanging out the whole time, and at the yeah. end of the episode, he shoots the Jem'Hadar. <laughs> yeah, that was you love your brain. I do. I love brain. Well, I don't know where the show's going to go from here, but the Dominion is now in open warfare. I would say they're not, you know, doing well. They're not in open. Well, warfare you know, yet, they're, they're, but... they're 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 they they tried to destroy the uh, entire Bajoran solar system. I. I I don't want if that's not open warfare at this point what is you know they 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 invaded with a gigantic fleet if that's not open warfare then open warfare is going to be bad well they didn't really invade they mm. were just passing through to go to their own territory right I don't know man right? because you know the federation wouldn't you know everything's going to be fine Richard don't worry about it <laughs> it's all going to be good let's talk about Doctor Bashir I presume. So I could tell this is an episode that I would have probably gotten more out of post-Voyager. Uh, yeah, I mean, the setup for the episode, I mean, you know, obviously the elephant in the room is this Bashir stuff, but we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, so so just to give you a little bit of backstory, uh, this is a, you know, a semi-crossover episode. Um, the character of Dr. Zimmerman is... The actor who plays him is the actor who plays the Doctor on Voyager. Uh, in the pilot episode of Voyager, Voyager's Doctor is killed, and the emergency medical hologram okay. takes over. So this is kind of a crossover. Yeah, and he was also in First Contact, right? Yes, he was. So I will say this act, this 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 episode does make me curious to see Voyager because, I mean, certainly there is going to be a difference between Doctor Zimmerman and the EMH, but at the same time, Doctor Zimmerman, you know did program this with his personality. He's kind of an asshole in a way that like Star Trek characters have not been assholes. And so I'm curious to see him as a main cast member. I will say that that is not a, uh, that is not an incorrect assumption. (laughs) And um, the doctor is one of maybe three interesting characters on Voyager. So, so so it's uh, Janeway the Doctor and Tuvok. Uh, yes, you okay. are correct. All right. Um, Actually, no, it's the Doctor, Neelix, and Tuvok. 
that's about all the context you need for that. Um, it's not really yeah, that relevant. No, he I, and he is definitely his own character in this. I think it would be there is a slight degree to which I mean I do find I mean there is a little bit of a resonance to it because if you have more of experience with the way in which uh, uh, the emergency medical hall yeah. personality is I do think that that uh, Alexander Siddick does a pretty good job of of playing that version of it when yeah. he is the the yeah, hologram yeah, yeah. that has the emh program loaded into it i think that's a nice little subtle touch but overall it doesn't yeah it doesn't matter see, that much i can see it being more oh now we're seeing the real version of him and, and that being a you know that being you know a, a pleasure if you're a voyager fan but it's a nice little treat for people that watch yeah. voyager essentially yeah um well so yeah this is a very controversial episode. I can see why. <laughs> I liked it a lot. I Yeah, I'm never sure how I mean, I like the episode. I think the episode is well done. Um I could do without the wacky Rom and Lita subplot, but that's another Oh issue. yeah, that's fair. But it's not that I don't like them. It's just it feels very tonally off in this episode. <laughs> yeah. But the elephant in the room, of course, is this, I mean, frankly, retcon that Mm. Dr. Bashir was genetically engineered to be a genius. Well, let me ask you this question. So this is obviously picking up something, this whole ganglionic nerve and the post-gang, whatever, that mistake. So... That is what I was referencing way back. Yes. So they gave a reason for that. So my understanding would be that, you know, this is maybe his way of spiting, you know, his dad by, well, I'm going to get something obviously wrong. No, no, no. It was more that he got it wrong because he was hiding. Okay. So, you know, being valedictorian. Okay. You know, I mean, it could have frankly been a been been a question of both. But the the point is, uh, yeah, so this explains that. Was that thought about when they when they had that episode or made they made no. that okay and this this is this is why it's so um this is why it's so controversial because the decision to make this character dr bashir genetically engineered in the yeah. past was made like two days before they wrote this like before they started filming they've this been episode. doing a lot of stuff with bashir and not telling him haven't they yeah and I don't know how I feel about it. I mean, See, this, to, if this if this was something that had been planned and seeded, I think it would have worked a lot better. I think it works as bad as well as it yeah. does. You can certainly look at it and say, you know, for example, in the Memory Alpha page um, in, I think, Homefront and Paradise Lost, the two-parter from the third season, you know, Odo does have a brief conversation with Dr. Bashir about, is there anyone on Earth you want me to say hello to? And Dr. Bashir says something to the effect of, there's no one on Earth that I would want to say hello to. Yeah, Stuff like that, you know, it's not that it doesn't fit in. It fits in well enough. I just think it is a fundamental shift in the character. And... I don't know how I feel about it. Hmm. And maybe that has to do with how the character develops from this point on. Okay. It's not that he suddenly becomes a different character. Alexander Siddick still plays him in fundamentally the same way. But is he holding back less now? I don't know what you mean by that. Well, because at the very end of the episode, you know, with the darts, for example. Yeah. I mean, and it is, I, I think mostly it's unfair to Alexander Siddick because... It just, it doesn't make, it doesn't like, it doesn't erase the last four and a half years of yeah. Dr. Bashir's character development, but it does put a very different spin on it. Hmm. And it also, 
frankly makes Alexander Siddig I think it's unfair to him because Alexander Siddig didn't know this wasn't playing him like mm-hmm. this I mean they wanted to leave the end of the episode with only um, O'Brien and Bashir like only O'Brien would have known yeah and Alexander Siddig apparently had to go to them and say look that, that's a terrible idea I am going to have to be playing this character with this huge secret that no one except O'Brien knows yeah. for the rest of the series that is going to color every interaction with every character I have and frankly, everybody's going to be waiting. When is Cisco going to find out? Right. This? It's like, we can't do this. And so the, the the decision was made to have this sort of compromise where his father goes to jail for two years and now everybody yeah. knows and he can stay in Starfleet. Mm. But I don't know. I'm talking a lot. But Well, I guess because on the one hand, this is a story that maybe it would have been more effective happening in season three, for example. Yeah. Or, I, this reminds me in some ways of, you know... And I mean, to be clear, even Iris Stephen Bear wasn't exactly thrilled with this development. Yeah. Um, I do like that they have... I mean, I, I, I think the implications of where this goes are very interesting. I definitely want to talk about, you know, that scene at the end with the Admiral talking and why this is such a big deal. Yeah. But... um. And we well, I mean, let's talk about that. Yeah, because I guess well, what I have at the end because they, you know, yes, on the uh, the, the the sentence is two years in a Federation penal colony in New Zealand, so it's not going to be hard. Which, interestingly enough, is another Voyager callback. Huh. <laughs> but anyway, um, he's not going to be treated badly. It's no. not going to be no. bad. It's going to be, you know. He's just going to be detained for two years, and he'll have access to a library. And as he says, you know, I'm going to work on my architecture. Like, it'll, he's going to be okay. On the one hand, this is a slap on the wrist. Uh, on the other hand, it, you know, I think it's interesting how when they, you know, I think it's Cisco who, you know, one of them, you know, says to the, you know, the admiral, like, that's so long. And he says, like, no, we need, you know, this is how seriously, you know, yeah. we happen to get Julian Bashir, you know, but we could have easily got a Khan Singh. Yeah. I mean, they need to. And from the admiral's view, this is almost too light of a punishment. What I think what I'm cross referencing is that Cassidy Yates got six months for aiding the for aiding terrorists. And yet, you know. This is a this is a longer punishment, which just goes to sh- and I mean this you have the mitigating factors of Doctor Bashir having an, the most exemplary record that of yeah. him. You know there there is no question of Doctor Bashir going to be you know the most asset for Starfleet and for everybody he comes in contact with. You have his mother you know pleading very eloquently and passionately her case. You have the you know yeah you have the fact that these are two people who this is the only thing that they've probably ever really done wrong in their lives. They have no other criminal record. All of those mitigating circumstances, and it's still two years. That's how severe of a crime this is. And I think, frankly, I agree with it. Well, I think there's a couple things there. I think, number one, um, I think it was a mistake to have it be a Starfleet admiral that passes sentence on him. Uh, mm. You know, this is a minor thing, but well, it, there is a civilian government. There is a civilian justice system. Why the fuck would Starfleet be involved in this whatsoever? Well, His father Im- is not in Starfleet. Mm-hmm. His father is not a Starfleet officer. He's not enlisted. No, but what they, I think— It would have what, nothing what to I, do with— well, because you said at the end, you know, everybody knows. I don't think everybody knows by the end of this episode. And I think that this was – this is I, – I get the sense that this is all a deal that was made. 
you know, in, but, in, in other words. Yeah, um, but I don't think that I, – I agree with you, but but there is a way to have it be a civilian judge yes. and still have it be, like, not an open – like, not an open and that's secret. that's fair. I mean, it's just – it makes no sense that it is a Starfleet officer because he has no jurisdiction over civilians. But anyway, Unlike, he, he's yeah. there because Star Trek forgets that civilian government exists, essentially. It's, and, and also I – mean, uh, also partially, too, because you would need a Starfleet admiral to talk about Bashir's, hap, you know, punishment if there is any. Or to say, you know, there is no punishment. You know, we're 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 letting this go because the civilian government is handling, you know, his father, and we're going to consider the matter closed after that. Yeah, that would have been a better way to write it. I think. Oh, fair. It's an oversight. It, it's just something that always bothers me about Star Trek because they think that Starfleet is like everybody's government, and it's not. <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, the other thing too is that I wish, honestly, that Star Trek would completely ignore. The eugenics wars. The eugenics wars and the genetic engineering stuff. Especially because this particular incarnation of the universe, it doesn't really... In DS9's continuity, which is the same as the others, but which does have its slight differences, the eugenics wars don't make any sense. They don't seem to fit... The eugenics wars... Well, number one, Ronald D. Moore got the timing wrong. I mean, he said it was 200 years, and it was not 200 years. It was more like 350, 400 years. The other thing too is, and to put it into a historical context, you know, the eugenics wars was a was a, a plot line in the original Star Trek, which was in the mid '60s, because eugenics was a big thing yes. in the in the first half of the 20th century, and a lot of very famous, very smart, very prominent people yeah. in government, in law, in, you know, everywhere um, believed in eugenics and. It made sense that the original Star Trek would bring that up. Yes. It doesn't make sense that it keeps coming up. And it's one of those things that, you know, Star Trek is not shy about ignoring or overlooking Mm -hmm. continuity when it does not fit into the story they want to tell. And to me, this is something that I think they probably just should have gone and left on the table because it it just it doesn't fit in with the mid 90s or even now 20 no, years later no i mean we're at the point where eugenics is not seen as you know most sane people well, think eugenics even, is a bad thing nobody even uses that word anymore you yeah. know it's not a concept that really exists although i don't know because i mean this was around the time when, you know like gattaca came out wasn't it um yeah, you know, but though, that so wasn't really I, I, eugenics. Uh, but I mean, you know, and we're also talking about, you know, this is when the Human Genome Project was in its, you know. Well, that's that's why they wanted to do it because genetic engineering was was a topic of conversation. Yeah, but genetic engineering doesn't have anything to do with eugenics. It's yeah, and that's so that's fair. Um, I mean, they're related a little bit. Yeah, but it's not and like, and I guess that you know. The episode seems to imply that you know there is there is apparently a stipulation for extraordinarily severe birth defects. It's mentioned, um, and that's and you know that's going to have its own uh, questions. But you know let let's leave that yeah. to the side for a second. Uh, and uh, I don't know. It's it's difficult to talk. I I, I don't necessarily feel you know, comfortable going too much into what baby Bashir was like. Uh, well, I think that's another at, area. I do want to go into but it. But at the same time, we need to, yeah. Well, it's another area in which the episode really falls down because the way in which Bashir talks about his childhood sounds like someone who was profoundly mentally disabled yeah. or, or severely autistic. Well, uh, b- And his 
parents seem to just be like, ah, he was a little slow. And it's yeah. like, well, which one is it? Because, I mean, you know, that's one of the – I know organizations, for example, like Autism Speaks are very controversial because they talk about – Autism is a condition that needs to be cured, and you know, famously, there are no autistic people on the board of Autism Speaks. Yeah, um, other organizations, you know, would talk more about, you know, you can be autistic and have a life full of, you know, dignity and fine, and you know, more about a different, you know, way way of, you know, the brain being wired rather than a problem in yeah. a way. Yeah, and so that you know, this episode is touching on this, you know, when. Bashir says at the end, well, you know, Jules died at that point, you know, and Julian was born. Right. And, you know, we don't know what he would have been. And it's true. You don't know if it would have been a kid who was not able to, you know, even know his own name and, you know, would have had a very low quality of life in the Federation that they were able to bring about. Or if it was just somebody who was, as you said, a few steps slower, maybe going to be, I mean – you know, it, isn't it Einstein, you know, didn't talk for the first few years of his life kind of a thing? Like there are plenty of people yeah. who had, you know, very slow development in childhood but managed to, you know, make a thing. Yeah, and I mean that's all tied into this idea, of course, that that Bashir's father is essentially a fuck up, and yeah, never, you know, which is an interesting idea. And of course, we we know a lot of well, we've seen, not a lot, we've seen some civilians in in the Federation, and everybody seems happy, and everybody seems like they're doing a lot yeah. of good work. But you know, there would be fuck ups, and there would be people that are never really figure out yeah. what they're good at. And his father is always one of those guys. You know, he, we've known those people that are always sort of like, yeah. I'm doing a lot of good stuff right now. You it know. was funny because when they first appeared, they reminded me a lot of. Worf's parents because, you know, Worf's father it was very much a geeky dude, you know, wanted to, you know, had done all of these things and was interested in everything, but he had actually accomplished some stuff in his career. He did right. actually know a little bit about his shit, you know, and then once – you know, Bashir and his parents are alone, and he starts to say, like, you never did any of those. You were you were right. a steward, you know, who got fired for being rude to somebody, you know. That 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 DS9s it up. I, yeah, it does. I mean, I think at the end of the day, though, what what it really comes down to is 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 that I, I wouldn't consider this character assassination for no. Bashir, but it does it does queer his character to an alarming degree. And uh, it it's just not it's not a satisfying thing to do. It feels kind of unfair to the character. At this, this late point. in the game, yes. Like, what does it really add to his character? What does it really do to him? And it kind of almost, you know, it it undoes or makes you look at all of the stuff, like in the quickening, for example. You know, like. He was not. He was able to figure out a a vaccine for that disease, but he wasn't able to figure out a cure. And you're always now you're you're like you're going back in your head and thinking, okay, well, what did Bashir do? What did Bashir not do? Why did he let certain people die? Why did he, you know? And it's like Bashir being this ultra genius still just feels unsatisfying yeah. in a fundamental way. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily cheapen Bashir because he is, you know, as Miles points out, you know, his character that that's nothing genetic, you know, Bashir's courage, his heroism, the fact that he is, you know, fairly selfless in a lot of ways, that he is a good friend to his friends, you know, that that he his is nice, but yeah, he is, you know, he's in a, that that could be genetic, though. Um, you know, as I said, Julian is an exceptional Starfleet officer in ways that transcend his genetics, certainly. 
Yeah. Um, there are plenty of people in Starfleet who are, you know, yes, Julian is maybe one of the best, but, you know, there are plenty of people, and anybody on the Enterprise, for example, is as good of an, you know, is as good of an officer, and, and they don't have those modifications. Um, at the same time, you know, how much of him is, you know, is this cheating? Is he using, you know, or did he just get, is is this fair? Is this unfair? I mean, he he almost, you know, you get a sense he almost thinks of Jules as another person that he stole everything from. Yeah, yeah, in a way. And I think that that's kind of, I don't know. I think it's a, it's a fall, it's a failing of the episode that that answer is never really, yeah. cl- like no one ever is ever really clear what the, what the question is even. They don't, I mean, and, do the writers not like Bashir anymore because they're just putting him through these weird things and just, you know, forgetting to tell the people they need to tell. I, I don't know. I mean, apparently Alexander Siddick found out like two days ahead of time that this was happening, you know, and, and I'm not really spoiling anything, but, but they do, they do try, I'm laughing because it's hilarious. They do try and uh, give him some data lake lines in the next couple of episodes and Alexander Siddig like just doesn't really read them well at all. Very deliberately to stop them from doing it. I mean, the one thing I will say about this episode is I, I think it's a good episode for the O'Brien and Bashir friendship. Mm. And I think it is very, very nice that O'Brien still is on his side. I mean, he says very nice things about Bashir in that interview yeah. with Dr. Zimmerman. And also he is able to, I guess, cheer up or give Bashir a pep talk. Yeah. That that is what Bashir needs to hear in a very, very organic and real way. But again, you know, and, and I think part of it is... You know, it's true. Bashir's intellect, his medical skills, you know, all of those. That's not why Miles is friends with him. Miles is friends with him irrespective of, you know, because of other things. You know, certainly he respects, you know, Julian's intellect and all of those. But, you know, at the end of the day, he likes it because they feel comfortable, because they can, you know, go into the holodeck, because they can play darts, because they can hang out and be themselves together. And so... You know, he needs to... Well, that's really what it comes down to, I think, is that, that you know, Bashir almost feels... Uh, you know, Bashir seems to be, like, ashamed of his parents or mad at them, but I think to a large degree, Bashir also wants to hide from them because they know both versions of him, yeah. quote-unquote. I mean, he... And O'Brien he, doesn't. You know, O'Brien only knows this Bashir, and he likes this Bashir. Yeah. He loves this Bashir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I... I, I and I just feel really... Bad when you know he's calling himself a freak and all of that. I mean, that's that's fourteen year old Julian Bashir coming out. Yeah, and you know you you can you know in that little moment you know what he was like as a teenager when he first found out what happened to him. Yeah, and yeah. it's 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 almost heartbreaking. Well, in a way too. I mean, it it is nice that at the end of the episode, you know, Bashir and his father do have that little moment where. You know, his father, maybe for the first time in his life, I don't know, you know, comes to terms with something that he did and takes responsibility for it. And really, I think, says the right thing to Bashir, where he says, look, this is not your fault. We did this to you. Like, this was an action that I decided to do. I took you to that planet to have this procedure done. And, you know, you kind of get the sense. I mean, Bashir probably has never dealt with any of this because who could he tell? You know, he couldn't really go to a counselor or psychologist and talk to them about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, again, he's he's also lived with the fact that he feels that there was shame towards him. Again, he, he feels that they yeah. they murdered Jules because, you know, he wasn't good enough and, you know, he was the – and, 
you know, it isn't until his mother, you know, finally says like, no, we just were heartbroken because, you know, we knew how hard your path was going to be. And, you know, we couldn't do that anymore. Well, and that's the other thing too, of course, is that, you know, Bashir in a way I think is, is, you know, his parents lost Jules and then they also lost Julian. Yeah. You know, because Julian very, very deliberately stayed away from them as much as he could. Yeah. You know, he never goes back to earth. And I think that's also, you know, at the end of the episode when Bashir says, Oh, maybe I'll come visit you in New Zealand. You know, like that's another little moment that they're trying to get yeah. over, you know, their, their situation here. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting. This, this show has, I mean, certainly Riker and his father had a problem for an episode and certainly, Card and his father had a problem for an episode, you know, and all of that. But uh, I, I would say fam- uh, family, family was, you yeah. know, and not, you know, that wasn't, you know, ne- necessarily problem itself. But, yeah, um, yeah. you know, a- and yet DS9 does a lot more with, you know, the estrangement. Obviously, Odo and, and the scientist, what's his name? Um, Dr. Mora. Dr. Mora. You know, they they have a... It, I, I think it's interesting that we've had two episodes in a short period of time that are about, you know, beginning to deal with an estranged parent. Yeah, somebody on the staff has daddy issues. Well, uh, yeah, someone on every writing <laughs> staff has daddy issues. Let's face it. And I think the last thing to mention before we move on to the Rom and Lita plot, is, as slight as it is, of course, is that we did not mention that Bashir's father's name is, is Richard. Richard. So what did you do, Richard? I got a nose extension and a mustache implant. <laughs> so uh, Rom and Lita are together. Yeah, I was waiting for them to get together, but not like this, man. Not like The only this. thing that I could think of at the end of the episode was that she better be very careful about kissing him because he's got some pretty sharp, snaggy teeth. You know, they they, they just... Good for them. I, I It's fine, I guess. I think it took up way too much time. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. It's uh, you it, know, it, 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 it is what it is. I, no, no. Listen, man, I got burned when Worf and Dax started to suck. So, like, I don't want anybody else to hook up. Now. Hey, let's be clear. They did not actually show Worf or Dax sucking anything, <laughs> but they showed the aftermath where they had all the broken ribs. True. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just, just. I, I, I I'm happy about it. You know, Cassidy and Ben Ben are together. Uh, Kieran Shakar. Everybody's shocked up and we're happy. Odo is doing whatever he's doing. Reading romance novels and fapping. I don't think that they do that. He was humanoid for a while. Oh, that's... Oh, oh I don't want to think about that. Yeah, I guess it's just another indication that DS9 is not afraid of getting characters together in a longstanding relationship, which is nice, I guess. Hmm. But... Aside from that, you know, it's another one of those things where the the B plot, you know, I think that the A plot is serious enough that it could have carried the entire episode by itself. Yeah. And if they needed a B plot in this episode, did it have to be this one? It's a little too comedic for me. But, uh, you know, it's fine that it dovetails with the, uh, you know, it gives us... Dr. Zimmerman. I, I, I like... Lita's going to move to Jupiter Station, and it's like, okay. I like him because he's both wormy and sincere in his way. Like, he's wormy as hell, but... Oh, he is, yeah. You know, at, at, at the same time, you know, he, he is, you know, complimenting Lita and giving her an opportunity that she may not necessarily want, but, you know, he's trying, you know? Yeah, that is true, Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's it. That's all we have to say about that. All right. Well, if you have any thoughts on either one of the episodes we just discussed, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at truckaboutshow.com. We also have 
a Patreon, patreon.com slash truckaboutshow if you like and enjoy our podcasts, including our new podcast, Tuning In. The third episode of that is being released in two days on Thursday. And as a special treat, if you give us $5 a month or more on our Patreon, you'll get to listen to our August patron special on the classic adventure video game Star Trek 25th anniversary, which people have actually asked us to do, so we're finally doing it. Because you wanted it. We're also on social media, Truck About Show, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And before we reveal the episodes for next week, we have a new review to read. Ooh! So, DJ Skin So Smooth oh. says... He must like lotion. He must. It's a long one, so I'm just going to skip around. I've been listening to this podcast for a little over a year because I love Trek, especially Deep Space Nine. The problem... Situation. I had a manager who said, never say problem, say situation. The problem is the when situation. They, the situation is when they start getting political and spouting all their political dogma that really doesn't have a place in a Star Trek podcast. The hosts are self-declared socialists. Again, I'm not judgmental. Well, I don't think you're a socialist. I would say, am I a socialist now? I don't think this person actually listens to the podcast. <laughs> Uh, again, I continued listening. That is until today. They open up the podcast talking about how they just don't care about straight people or their problems. Well, it is true. It is true. So I would no longer listen to this podcast. I don't like being targeted and attacked for my political beliefs or sexual orientation any more than they would as that message is as anti-Trek as you can get. Well, I have two thoughts on this. Number one is is that we don't like Star Trek, actually. So who do we care? I love Star Trek. Uh, I'm sorry that we lost Donald Trump as a listener. (laughs) I guess I want to contextualize that and explain that because I remember the episode was, was that looking for Ponfar in all the wrong places or whatever it's called? I don't know which one it was actually. Um, We were specifically talking about, see, see, I know one of the, one of the general sci-fi people will dismiss literary fiction as Stories about people almost having affairs for 500 pages. That's kind of one of those. Um, And I think to a degree, that's where we're coming at this from. Sure. Um, One of the movies Eric and I will just mercilessly make fun of is Love Actually because it's a movie about, you know, straight white people having straight white romance problems. And, I, I, you know, when I say I don't care about straight people's problems – the thought of a man and a woman getting to a point where they're having sex together and that's the entire plot is the most boring fucking thing to me. I could not care any less. I don't really care about romance subplots for the most part. So yes, did I want Worf and Dax to get together? Yeah, as part of other plots. I think when the episodes are entirely about Worf and Dax having a problem, as was... um the one where they went to rise of yeah. the episode. And that might have even been the episode we said it about. Maybe. I don't because know. Because I don't really. Well, I mean, I think, you know, there's kind of a joke and we kind of joke about this, but I do want to take this seriously because, you know, we do yeah. take criticism seriously. Um, you know, I think that the political stuff aside and, you know, I don't think that I've ever really said anybody's wrong for not believing the way that I believe. And uh, um, Unless it's things like, you know, Let's explain. Women are not people. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, I'll disagree with that. Um, you know, I think that the one thing, to be serious for a minute, I think that, you know, we joke about this and we joke about not caring about straight people or their problems, which, you know, to some degree is a joke. I mean, I have a lot of straight people in my life. I like <laughs> Some of our best friends are straight. Straight people are fine. 
Uh, there is a degree to which I don't think that straight people actually understand the gay viewpoint or, or what it's like to be a gay person in this society. And, uh, you know, to be clear about this, I think that this is a perfect example of that, where we are coming at this from a very particular point of view. If perhaps we're not being as funny as we think we're being, that's fair. But also don't discount our real feelings about the fact that, you know, I feel condescended to by straight people a lot of the time. Another, and, yeah. you know, people have called my relationship, oh, your friend, you know, stuff like that yeah. drives me fucking insane. Uh, we had someone who just murdered 49 gay people and, and straight people, too. There were straight people that were murdered, unfortunately. It's not good that anybody is murdered. But in a in a homophobic, anti-queer attack, and specifically anti-queer, anti, uh, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, but apparently Latinx, which is a, uh, a way in which you say Latino and Latina to be okay. gender inclusive. Um, and everyone has been talking about it as some sort of Islamic terrorism thing. No one is talking about the fact that homophobia is still a very real problem in America. And now that we have same-sex marriage and people can fight in the military, that has not solved all the problems. So back off, dude. Yeah. I, I, I mean, he's not listening to this anymore, but... Maybe he is. Um, yeah. I get, again, for me, it's that. And for me, from, from less of a political standpoint and more... Back off, dude or lady. <laughs> um. And from more of a uh, you know story you know television criticism point of view, again, another goddamn story about straight people in a relationship is like getting socks for Christmas. <laughs> yes, like I'm so fucking. I it, we, it's very difficult for me to be interested in a straight up romantic comedy. You know those kind of a things. I'm not going to get invested that that much in a, you know two characters getting together and having that seem like it's a major important thing when you know i am not i really don't give a shit about you know how o'brien and kira felt about the fact that they had feelings for each other even though one of them was married like come the fuck on like you know it's you're, you're, lot- you're in the future just be adults about this have a conversation is how i feel i yeah i think that my final word on this and i think this is exactly what, yeah. you're, what you're dancing around is that part part of our attitude towards straight people and their problems quote unquote and these storylines is that Straight people, just get your shit together. Yes, clean That's, up your just, house. Just, just take care Stop of your Stop worrying shit. about our fucking houses and clean up your own because you're a mess. And that is what I will say about that. Um, we're sorry that you're not listening anymore. But also the second thing, there, the one thing was a joke about Donald Trump. I don't think that was actually Donald Trump because I don't know if Donald Trump actually knows how to use a computer. He tweets but, all the time. Okay, that's true. But number two is that at the end of every episode, we specifically say positive iTunes review. Yeah. What the? F- See, straight people. You straight can't people. even listen to directions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so if you would like to give us a positive iTunes review, please go to iTunes and leave a review for Trek About. And DJ Skin So Smooth. If you would like to leave a negative, re- if you would like to leave a negative iTunes review, please email DJ Skin So Smooth at uh, gmail.com. Let's hope. Yes. Next week, we are continuing our journey into the fifth season of Deep Space Ooh. Nine. We're getting kind of like pat. Well, we're past the halfway point at this point, which is hard to believe. I can't wait. 
We're talking about the episodes A Simple Investigation and Business as Usual. Oh, I bet both are. I bet it's neither going to be a uh, simple investigation, and I bet a lot of crazy things are going to happen. You'll find out next week. <laughs>